Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, I'm a sports nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. This is Dr. John Mike. I'm assistant prof in exercise science. Um, you know, pretty much all around, nice guy, do a little bit of everything. And um, I've had the sniffles this week, but uh, feeling, feeling a lot better these last couple of days. Mm. And I'm Anthony Roberts. I'm a journalist, I guess, that sort of specializes in the fitness industry. Excellent. All right. Well, we have some uh, news here. And after we get through the news and we talked with Anthony a little bit about his background, uh, today's topic is going to be the recent FDA slash DEA, um, I don't know what you might call this, um, you know, reg- regulation against Kratom or Kratom, however you pronounce that, that a lot of people are upset about. And, you know, there's a lot of fussing and I think um, discussion going on about um you know, big pharma, is this fair? Uh, you know, what's this What's this drug do? What does it mean to lifters, maybe with chronic pain? You know, that sort of stuff. So just quickly, I'm going to go through a few news bits here. Strength and Muscle Sport News. I just got my monthly update from the Institute of Food Technologists. And uh, sometimes I'll drill down into these very deeply, but I'm just going to touch on the surface of each of these, and I'll just point everyone this week to uh, IFT.org. Again, someone is making our food, and often it's the food technologists, right? I mean, I grew up uh, in dietetics programs in many ways, and they would always say there's only one legitimate way to teach or interact with nutrition, and that's through dietetics and doing it their way. But, you know, over the years, I started thinking, well, but dietitians don't make the food and all that sort of thing. So this is from the food scientists, but couple of news blurbs. They have a wellness newsletter that I've mentioned before. And here's just a couple of the headlines you can go check out if you're interested. Uh, the first one says the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, says 20% of every U.S. state's population is now obese. Uh, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released their adult obesity prevalence maps. And if anybody's seen those before, you can kind of see states. Uh, they do it by color oftentimes, and you see them change in color, becoming more and more obese. Uh, but it says, according to the data, one in five Americans, uh, at least 20% of the population in all 50 states, Guam and Puerto Rico, are now obese. So, uh, wow, you know, that's the food industry in, in a lot of ways. Uh, sure, there's personal um, responsibility in a way, but here in the states, um, there's some other issues at work, you know. So, uh, Next, American Heart Association sets new added sugar limits. Now, this is for children, but I think it, it applies pretty well to a lot of adults, too. The American Heart Association has announced a new standard for how much sugar children should be adding uh, to foods each day. Uh, now, this is for children all the way up to age 18 years of, old, of age. So if you're 18, you're like, I'm not a child. They just classify <laughs> this huge range. But the point being is uh, they said that uh, these individuals should eat six teaspoons of added sugars a day, which is about 100 calories or 25 grams of sugar. 
Yeah, that's just that's just not even realistic. That's I mean, really I, I low. Mean, yeah, it's just I don't understand when you have these doctors and just fitness enthusiasts or whoever it doesn't really matter. Um, it's just they all put sugar like in the same damn category, like all sugars. And when pe- when people say, "Oh, you know, don't eat that; it has too much sugar," or you know, "No sugar for you," or and all this all this other silliness. I mean, do they not understand the difference between like sucrose and fructose? You know, um, I just don't. It, the whole argument is it, it, they just don't understand. They, they they try to make it simple, but it's it's really like a um, simple question, complex answer type of thing. Oh. Well, I think a lot of it has to depend. It depends on sort of your glycogen economy. You know, if you're exercising and you're always depressing your liver and your muscle glycogen stores and that sort of thing. Well, yeah, but I know. mean, just something like a relatively healthy person who may wants to just lose some body composition and, you know, gain some strength. And it's just like, you know, people say, well, I don't eat this because it doesn't have any sugar. I mean, everything gets broken down into sugar. It's called glucose, you know. Right. Uh, no, well, so. honestly, I mean, I am – I'm pretty down on the amount of refined carbohydrates and sugars that we eat right. these days, especially because people are so sedentary. And you're, like you said, I mean, for listeners, if you're not familiar, sucrose or the white granular stuff on your table, that's 50% glucose, which uh-huh. all carbohydrates become in your blood, but and it's 50% fructose. So, you know, I, I like the ideas of limits on this. And honestly, and this is going to bleed over into our topic and Anthony, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but the the FDA opened a period of comments where they would accept public comments on this whole sugars idea. Because when they updated the food labels, and you're going to start seeing new food labels over the next two years. You know, the calorie number is really big. They dropped um, vitamin A. Uh, they don't focus on vitamin A and C like they used to as far as vitamins. They focus on vitamin D. Uh, now and a, a little bit of oh, several different things but the point is added sugars was something that they got wrestled with a lot because i think the intent was noble you know for example you can chug a pepsi or you can chug some orange juice or even eat an orange or two and they have similar amounts of sugar but the oranges don't have added sugar now your body you know the flip side of this is your body's not going to identify all oh, that can't, you know the sugar's sugar uh but Obviously, orange juice and oranges are going to have potassium and vitamin C and you know other micronutrients that a Pepsi or a you know a cola does not. So uh, that's they open it up. You know, like what do you think? And of course, like the Sugar Refiners Association, you get a lot of people almost lobbying, you know, to say, "Oh, loosen the sugar limits." You know, and then you have the other people saying, "No, bring them way down." But what you're saying, I think, is maybe the ultimate question, which is what's realistic, right? Let's mm-hmm. limit sugar, but where do we set this number? Now, that number of 25 grams, it might be bigger for grown-ups, right? We're talking about mostly kids here. So we'll have to see where this pans out. But uh, when we get to our topic, uh, obviously there are some botanicals like Kratom that I don't think the DEA even accepts public comment. Is that right, Anthony? Well, so, yeah, what go, going back to the FDA, what they actually did, and you can really see that they're they're avoiding public comment, they're not just not accepting it. So they're not just going with the default position of, you know, we're going to we're going to do this. Uh, the FDA issued an import alert, which they don't need any public comment on. So they basically made it so they could turn away Kratom at the border. Oh, okay. they don't need any permission to do that. So now that's one thing. 
But then when you see the DEA schedule it, emergency schedule it, also without public comment, it it has to smack of two agencies trying to avoid public comment. Right. And I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get into that very specifically um, in the second half of this show. But uh, you can see the difference. Now, a lot of people might say, well, sugar and, you know, something that's opiate like these are two different animals. But let's face it, sugar in excess can be damaging. Uh, fructose, like you know, Dr. Mike mentioned. I mean, so it is interesting how some of these things become. Uh, well, I don't, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We'll get there. To your point with the sugar, you know, the problem as as you were, you know, identifying is it's the added sugar. So you, you know that sriracha sauce that everyone loves? Yeah, yeah. It's got sugar in it, right? Like yeah. that, one of the ingredients is sugar. Nobody would think that. You wouldn't think they were adding tablespoons of sugar to a bottle of whatever hot sauce, right? Amen, yep. And if you look, if you go buy peanut butter, you know, there's sugar in it. So the problem is that there's these things that you would logically intuitively think there's no sugar in peanut butter it's peanuts and oil and salt the problem is that these things that we intuitively wouldn't suspect sugar to be in it is in and that's where we're getting these you know where someone thinks they're consuming 40 grams of sugar in a day and they're getting 100 that that's the yeah. real problem is that right. we're taking away the the personal agency of the consumer, you know, who's not going to turn the bottle around. They say, like, this is hot sauce. There's no sugar in this. Right. So we're taking away some of their ability to be informed. Yeah, I was fussing uh, months ago about uh, – I went to Sam's Club, and I brought I bought some um, chicken breast, and there was high fructose corn syrup in my chicken breast. And, <laughs> like, who would think that? Who would think that? Now – I, I think it might have been it might have had a light breading on it or whatever, but it, it looked uh, decent enough. But again, who thinks that? Or you'll see labels. I was doing some continuing medical education at a local hospital here for some uh, local physicians, and I was showing some of the label claims. Like they'll show bagels, and it'll say with no high fructose corn syrup. And I'm thinking there shouldn't be any high fructose corn syrup in a bagel. You know, I kind of want to look and see what bagels have it right. Like who would put this in a bagel? That's not. An ingredient for a bagel, right? Right. So that's what I mean. That the um, the claim seemed almost absurd. They're boasting that there's no high fructose corn syrup. It's like that's not a feather in your cap, buddy. That's an expectation, you know. Yeah, that's the minimum bar. Right. Yeah. Talking. Yeah. Uh, yes. Here's another one. It says expert insight is quote unquote rare sugar a potential game changer in the war against obesity. Rare sugar is true to its name. This class of monosaccharides, or single sugars, occurs rarely in nature, where about 50 different types of rare sugar exist. Human ingenuity, however, is about to make rare sugar much less rare, and the result may be a new weapon against obesity. Now, that's all this blurb says. Again, you can check it out at ift.org. A few other tidbits here. Germany leads the world in energy drink launches. According to Mintel Global New Products Database, more energy drinks were launched locally, uh, sorry, globally in 2015 than in any year since 2008, uh, with the number of energy drink products launched growing by 29% in the last five years. So continues to skyrocket, uh, the energy drink stuff. And then uh, lastly on this bit of tidbits, can a soda tax impact consumption behavior? A study published in the American Journal of Public Health shows that a small tax on sugar-sweetened beverages 
may in fact result in reduced consumption of those beverages. And Anthony, I know uh, it's been a year or two, I think, but that sugar tax was a a big controversy out in in New York, wasn't it? Yeah, there was the sugar tax was a big controversy, and then you know because you it's a sin tax really, and then the the bigger one was like you couldn't have a sixty four ounce soda. Right. Right. Like yep. Yeah. Limit the size of the vessel that the soda was in, but you you know, and obviously like. Right away, people just said, well, I can buy two 32-ounce ones. Right, right. So, you know, and there's that element of, you know, the more sort of silly laws you make where now, all right, I'll buy two and I'm flouting the law. The more silly laws you make that are stupid and don't have an effect, the more people look at other laws as being stupid and ineffectual. Okay, yeah, good point. I have one last little uh, bit of news, and then I have a listener question that's really going to be good for you, Dr. Mike. So, okay. um, This last bit, this is from labmanager.com. It's about gene modifications of humans. It's back in the news, and I'll tell you, with CRISPR out there, this is not going away. You know, they brought it up during the Olympic Games, and so this is called uh, – I love this video. It explains it really well, and that's why I want listeners to check it out if they can. It says, genetically modified humans – CRISPR slash Cas9 explained. Now, this is from the American Chemical Society. If you're not familiar, they are a very legitimate, very respectable, longstanding group in many ways. They have educational bits now. And here it says, thanks to a new cheap and accurate DNA editing technique called CRISPR-Cas9, targeted gene modification in humans is no longer just the realm of science fiction. Both the British and the U.S. governments recently gave scientists the thumbs up to edit DNA in human embryos and adults and adults using CRISPR. So does this mean that we can trim out genetic diseases or mutations or maybe even add in abilities like infrared vision, possibly creating a designer baby dystopia? (laughs) Uh, In the latest reactions episode, we explain CRISPR and how it works. So check out our YouTube. Uh, Facebook listeners page, everyone, and I will post this link. But if you want to check it out, it's uh, you could go to labmanager.com. It's one of their highlights about CRISPR. Uh, this stuff is cheap. It's fast. And I start thinking, I mean, bodybuilders and powerlifters have been no strangers to, you know, experimenting even on themselves with anabolics of all kinds, you know, fat loss agents, anabolics. And uh, I'm very curious, right? I almost want the listenership to kind of, keep their eyes peeled for suspected gene doping cases because, uh, I mean, you know, pharmaceutical trickle-down happened in the strength sports, and I really don't see how this would be much different. You know, uh, some of the stuff I've looked at looks like localized hypertrophy, you know, that lasts for several months and then may fade, stuff like that. I I can't even imagine where this is going to go. But CRISPR, you know, it's cheap enough and it's going to be pervasive enough. We're going to start seeing it, so I I want people to look for it. I don't know. So, little science there. But I think it's important that you get that, right? There are a lot of meathead podcasts. I'm not sure they're going to be talking about CRISPR. They'll talk about anabolic drugs, but mm-hmm. I'm telling you, CRISPR is the next the next approach when you can snip out parts of your genetic code and put in what you want. It's crazy. Yeah, that's uh, – I mean, you're looking at a whole new level of, uh, I mean, potential just – gains from outer outer space. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, the ability to be so big – 
like the I've always I've already kind of said I think that the quest for size is over. You know, through, oh, yeah. through the eighties and nineties. Just... I mean, you could be so big, your quivering, dysfunctional lump of muscle. You know, and re- five regular men have to carry you off this bodybuilding stage because you hit one pose and you cramp up. You know, um, yeah. It, 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 oh. I don't know. And so this is going to be when you completely remove the ceiling. What's going to be left? You know, I know the Olympia. They're trying to set what is it the two twelve weight class, and they're trying to do different things to put a cap on how big you are. I, I don't know where it's going to go. I, I think in a lot of ways, technology is killing uh, bodybuilding. You know, yeah, uh, bodybuilders are great lab rats for for the cheaper anabolics, but something that that requires expense. And bodybuilders are poor, you know. Um, so. I think if we see something like this, we're going to see it at, at the the really high levels of athletics. Um, bodybuilders just don't have the money. The sport doesn't produce the income where they're going to be at the, the cutting edge of something expensive. They're going to be at the cutting edge of a lot of things, and they're going to be lab ratting a lot of things. But something that requires, you know, legitimate money and backing is is beyond you know, Mr. Olympia. Yeah, that, well, beyond the gym a, rat, I mean, a lot of the Mr. Olympia guys, I've heard tales of fifty to $100,000 drug cycles, and I know compared to pro sports, that's nothing. Uh, but CRISPR is going to get cheap. CRISPR is going to get cheap. So well, I'm just I'm just very curious to see where that's headed. Yeah. Okay, um, here's the listener qu- Actually, this is from Reddit, uh, John. So okay. uh, this is right up your alley, and uh, Dr. Nelson was kind of uh, poking fun at the way it's worded, but... I want to add one day of functional strength training to my week. What should I do? Uh, is that the whole question? That's the whole question. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I would first define what they mean by like functional strength. That's, I what, mean, that's what Mike was know. saying, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, think about like traditionally kind of, kind of functional strength really kind of came out of rehab really in the early to mid 2000s and and people just kind of jumped on it with, you know, stability balls and OSU balls and all this other stuff. And I mean, you know, now the kind of the the definition has really taken on more of a um, a movement, a systematic movement a definition. Um, I mean, and that could be deadlifts, that could be squats. I, I really, I really would like to just, I need to know a little bit more, to be honest, um, and what they what they have in mind because. Sometimes what people have in mind versus what um, kind of reality allows them to do or, um, you know, what is different is just is just kind of different. Um, so I will I would really need to know more. But I mean, just overall, I mean, are you are you deadlifting? Like, are you squatting? Are you overhead pressing? Um, you know, are you doing any type of just, you know, kettlebell things, kettlebell swings, battle ropes? I mean, mm-hmm. most things most things can can serve a, a pretty good functional purpose. Yeah, I think that's uh, what he's getting at. Something almost like strongman-esque, you know, as opposed yeah. to traditional stricter barbell moves. But good points about, like, deadlift, squat, overhead press, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to throw in something beyond that, where where would you tell someone that they might want to start exploring? Um, I would start um, on a fundamental basis. I would start with just um, – like more primal chain. Uh, my buddy, uh, Dr. Perry Nicholson talks about primal chain movements and it has to do with aspects of like rolling patterns and crawling patterns and creeping crap patterns. Um, or even things just like, you know, 
baby Turkish get-ups. Now, I will say that like Turkish get-ups are really, really high-end, um, like you know, a corrective. It's not something that would have anybody, you know, start out doing. Okay. Um, but even just something like, like you know, depending on if you're deadlifting, I mean, kettlebell deadlifting, um, you know, T-spine mobility drills, you know, hip mobility types of things. Because, you know, mobility is, is great. Um, but if you don't, if you're not backing it up with stability, it's not really doing you much good. Um, and I think a lot of people spend too much time on, on mobility work. What I mean, when I mean too much time, I mean, you know, um, 20 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes, um, you know, every day of their training session and they're not really backing it up with stability and they, they may often find that, that it doesn't hold. Um, so I would start out with just some, you know, it could be something as simple as just like farmer's walks, you know, heavy farmer's right, walks yep. with the dumbbells yep. or, you know, kettlebells, um, you know, maybe some um, just sled drags and sled pulls, um, prowler pushes. You know, it doesn't have to be really heavy weight, um, just something that um, is just like a what is called like non-traditional types of exercises. So. Okay. No, appreciate it. Right. So, okay. Before we go to break, let's just get a quick background on Anthony. Uh, trying not to drift too much into the topic right away. In fact, I even have a listener mail that started a lot of this uh, that's a little inflammatory. Uh, but anyway, I digress. Anthony, maybe if you could just share with everybody your background. You know, why do you have an interest in not just Kratom, but, you know, fitness or what's your uh, athletic or academic background, any of that sort of stuff? Sure. Uh, so a- academic-wise, I went to uh, – Seton Hall, played rugby there. Uh, I got two degrees, one in English, one in philosophy. Uh, I left Seton Hall um, after I graduated, went and played rugby in the first division in New Zealand. Uh, Came back, coached for four years uh, at the D1 university level, played on a bunch of all-star teams, made national all-stars two years in a row. Um, Wrote a book on steroids in 2006, wrote an ebook or two after that did a Amazon Kindle single on, uh, on trafficking on steroid trafficking. Uh, I was senior editor for steroid.com for VPX sports, um, written a thousand articles, probably, uh, think steroids, mostly, um, you know, mostly stuff, uh, in that world. But, you know, to be honest to the average person, that's sort of edgy and that's you know uh, esoteric uh and you know different world um but within the fitness world i found it much more interesting to look at sort of more more uh dietary supplements and kind of the the arena that that's in play because you know steroid dealers and users are de facto criminals but most of the supplement world are pretty much criminals too so that that really got me interested and you know then i jumped into the society of professional journalists and i'm a, I'm a member there um, i'm a member of the nsca i have a, you know a couple training certs so okay with, yeah with kratom uh and you'll notice i keep calling it two different things i'm not sure why i do that with kratom um i'm not sure if you're gonna know who the dude is but uh chris bell Oh yeah, yeah, we yeah, know. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Chris Bell's a friend of mine, and he uh, gave me a call a 
couple months ago, and he's doing this uh, documentary on uh, Kratom. And so I started filing a bunch of uh, Freedom of Information Act requests with like the DEA, the FDA, trying to find out what's going on behind the scenes. Wrote a couple articles on it, and then uh, when the ban came along, I was sitting hundreds of pages of, of documents. So I was it just, I guess, happened that I was ahead of the curve on that where I had been doing this research for a buddy of mine who's doing a documentary and things, unfortunate events fell into place that now this is a, a hot button topic and, uh, you know, and I'm sitting on all this information. So okay. that's, that's my, you know, my interest in, in Kratom. That's why I guess I was at the front of this. Um, just complete luck. Right. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. Uh, let's go to break. Uh, and when we come back, we'll jump right into this, you know, um, governmental scheduling issue of this uh, opiate-like uh, substance that some weight lifters use. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook – uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. 
you'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, we're back from break. Uh, Dr. John here, Lonnie Lowry, and Anthony Roberts. We're talking about um, Kratom, which is... um, yeah, talking about FDA regulation with it's actually a a, a painkiller. That's the topic for today, right? Yeah, um, you know, uh, anti anxiety, uh, uh, chronic pain management. Apparently, there's there's quite a few uses, and I was not aware of this. Like Anthony might might you might be surprised. Like how can you not know about this? But uh, I digress. Let me read an email that started some of this. This is. Uh, and he wants his name left anonymous, but he says, Hi, Lonnie and guys. I have been a faithful listener of Iron Radio for seven years. For the most part, I've always been pleased with the show topics as well. Um, it says, I need to tell you that I am shocked, and then all caps, shocked that you did not bother to mention the recent announcement by the U.S. government uh, to, to move Kratom to Schedule 1 status alongside meth, LSD, heroin, bath salts, and other such drugs. Uh, come the end of September. I suspect you are aware and basically would have added it to your weekly news segment. Sadly, you didn't even give it an honorable mention. You talk about a variety of issues during your weekly news segment. Some of them are only tangential uh, to weight trainers and that sort of thing. Like, you know, we were talking about vegans last time and not just vegans as far as weight training, but, you know, some of the nutrient issues. And and let's face it, I mean, this is also a sports nutrition related show. We're going to get into that stuff, but he says, as I believe you already know, Kratom is used by many people for quote-unquote unofficial medicinal benefits, not the least of which is pain management. Uh, and, of course, you can, you can find some information on how people are you know, using this, even weightlifters. Maybe it's some augment their training, blunt pain, uh, whatever it might be, reduce uh, stress. For some reason, you fail to mention or make, an, make mention of this important issue. Uh, and again, this email is a bit cut off, so it's hard for me to read all this. I didn't expect you to be a cheerleader or an advocate, but it would have been appropriate to you know, at least you know, mention the alert, etc. cetera. Uh, then again, I suppose it is possible that none of the show hosts heard the recent news. Uh, and in that case, my apologies uh, if this was just overlooked. So long story short to this listener, um, I was not aware of this. And I actually asked my wife about it because my wife is a chronic pain counselor. And she was explaining – she was just at a workshop, and they were explaining it's an opiate you know, substance. And But like Anthony was just saying, that's only the beginning of this, right? So I have a lot of – a lot of thoughts are coming into my naive mind about some of this, I think. Uh, and I'm just going to – we're going to fire some questions at Anthony, and John and I will you know, get in on this, and that will be our topic. So, uh, Anthony, maybe let's just start with what is a Schedule One drug? There's no medicinal value to a Schedule One drug. So this is basically the worst of the worst. This is a drug that damages the user, damages society, and is inconceivable that it would have some medical benefit. Okay. You know, marijuana. That's a Schedule One drug. Yeah, I know that's tough for a lot of people to swallow, and a lot of states even disagree with that now. Yeah, yeah, the, and the DEA's statement on that is almost... I mean, it's almost like trolling the country. The DEA said, well, we're going to go with science on this one. It's, it's going to remain a Schedule 1. <laughs> How can right. you say that with a straight face? Yeah, yeah. So, okay, now, 
this the recent action about uh, kratom or kratom. Uh, can you relate? How does this how does this compare to the Anabolic Steroids Control Act in the early '90s and that sort of thing? Well, that that actually required that was legislation. Okay. So they actually had to get that passed as a law. This is the DEA acting unilaterally. Okay. They just decided, hey, look, we need some time to look at this. That's why it's an emergency scheduling. Their, their position is that it's just so out of control and it's, it's so gotten beyond their reach. They need to make it a schedule one drug immediately while they back up and study it. So in two years or three years, I forget what the timeline is, um, you know, they have to have a permanent um, decision on it. So it could, in a year, it could be legal again. Okay. In theory. Yep, gotcha. They're not, they're, what they're doing, though, is you can't sell it for a year. So they're knocking the legs out from under everyone who's selling Kratom, right? So, okay, yeah. How are they going to get the money to lobby for a year and try and influence policy, which I, I have a problem with lobbying and influencing policy anyway, but they've made it a situation where these people can't do that. They, they cut their, you know, their finances off. Okay, got you. Is this similar in some way to the ban on ephedrine? I mean, ephedrine in many ways to me, the ephedrine caffeine aspirin stack, and I know, you know, John, you're familiar with this and whatnot as well, but <sighs> for years people did that, and that sort of, in many ways to me, was a big part of the pre-workout, the development of how popular pre-workouts are, you know, and yep. then they kind of, companies just all started backing away from it, you know, and uh, so, Anthony, how does the, how does the Kratom thing maybe relate to the, you know, the bans well, on ephedrine? See, again, like, the FDA actually did that, and they went through the proper channels, and they were sued. They were sued over that. They took that, you know, people selling ephedrine went down swinging on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the FDA really got taken to task. And in many respects, that's why I think they try and circumvent, you know, any sort of opposition by just saying, well, we're going to we're going to prevent people from importing it. OK, but you just kind of, you know, you're killing the industry again, unilaterally and without transparency and without any sort of, you know, public dialogue. So I think in a lot of ways, the FDA, um, with ephedrine and whether or not I agree with the ban and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty liberal in that sense. Like I think we should be able to put whatever we want into our bodies, but regardless of whether I agree with it, they went through the proper channels. Okay. In this case, they just said, well, we're going to do an import alert. And then the DEA said, well, we're going to emergency schedule it. They're, they're effectively cutting the public out of public policy, which is wrong, uh, from any angle. Okay, right, understood. Uh, my only exposure to this was that Forbes article, right? And I know you're familiar with it, Anthony, by David Kroll. Yep. And it's called, uh, the DEA is placing Kratom in uh, metragenine, I think it's called, on Schedule 1. So let sure. me just uh, set up part of his first paragraph here. It says, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency has filed a notice of intent. Actually, this is even slightly dated. Um, this article now, but uh, to place the Southeast Asian plant called Kratom uh, to the most restrictive classification of controlled substances act. The plant, Mitragyna speciosa, and its two primary constituents, uh, mitragynine and 7-hydroxymitragynine, 
will be temporarily placed on Schedule 1 uh, September 30th, according to a filing by the uh, DEA at 8.45 a.m. Eastern Time today. Again, this is a, a, a several days ago now, but um, the full announcement is scheduled to be published in the Federal Register. And then he goes on about how what we've been alluding to here. He says, uh, the DEA argues no need for public comment before the Kratom ban. And, of course, I, I think he's touched on this, and I know others have, uh, about the role of big pharma in all this. Anthony, can you maybe comment on that? Well, uh, right now I have um, I have some active Freedom of Information Act requests in with the FDA and the DEA asking – uh, for any communications between pharmaceutical industry uh, representatives or lobbying groups that represent them or Big Pharma itself uh, and the FDA or DEA um, that, that mentioned Kratom. So I, I've filed some requests to see if there were discussions going on uh, where maybe they were trying to influence, you know, Kratom being taken off the market. Uh, I wouldn't be able to comment, but I, I suspect something was going on. Uh, or I wouldn't have filed to get the documents. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can tell you, it, it concerns me when I see uh, excessive levels of control in an effort to, you know, supposedly protect the public. Uh, Dr. Nelson and I have been to conferences before, actually, where they were uh, the drug companies are creating analogs of omega three fatty acids, and because, you know. People can take fish oils. Fish oils, for lack of a better word, work. You know, they're mood-stabilizing. They're anti-inflammatory. They reduce cardiac risk. I mean, you could go down a list of things. And they're they're trying to tweak the molecule. And the data that I saw made it look really not as good as just good old uh, omega-3 fatty acids. Now, uh, the fish oil, uh, the estrified fish oil, uh, that's, you know, prescription fish oil, uh, has a lower absorption rate and, you know, it, it doesn't work as well. Yeah, um, to, yeah. I mean, on some levels, hey, if your insurance pays 100% and you just take an extra cap and you, you know, you don't have to buy fish oil, you get it for free, that's great. But they made a product that's less efficacious and now they're soaking, you know, yeah. the insurance companies. Well, what we saw in Spain, yeah, they were tweaking the DHA uh, molecule eight ways to Sunday, just, you know, make it essentially synthetic and pat patentable and but yeah the flip side of that is if you don't have good insurance i don't want to go spend 150 dollars at my local doctor to get my prescription for fish oil especially if it's not as good right you know just ridiculous to me but um, well i mean you know and, and that's the thing you know there's a bunch of patents in play for uh for kratom okay so big pharma definitely has their fingers in that pie um, and here's a real interesting one. So the DEA says, look, there's no medical use for this, but there was a patent applied for, uh, I believe it was University of Mississippi and University of Louisiana were the uh, inventors. And the funding came from the National Institute of Health, National Institute of Drug Policy, and it was a patent for Kratom um, for opiate withdrawal. So on the one hand, you have the government saying, we want to patent this for use in opiate withdrawal. And then you have another agency of the same government saying, this has no medical use. Right. Yeah. Sketchy. So it's congruous. You know, there's, there's no way to take that claim seriously when you have the same government saying the opposite thing in a patent application. 
Yeah. Let me set the stage with something here because this this dovetails off what you just said as far as, you know, used to get off of opiates if someone has, you know, been addicted to something like heroin or something. Uh, at least in the fourth piece, it says, in the last two months, published research has pointed to why Kratom might be useful and a safer alternative to prescription opioids. The main component of the herb, the alkaloid metragenine and its metabolite and oxidation product, 7-hydroxymetragenine, produce an effect on the MU, the mu uh, subtype of opioid receptors. Uh, essentially, what these do is uh, it says the effect minimizes the engagement of an intracellular protein called beta-arrestin that, among other effects, causes a reduction in opioid receptors on the surface of cells, leading to tolerance and dose escalation commonly seen with prescription opioids. So, in other words, it seems a superior approach because it doesn't cause down-regulation of your opioid receptors, uh, and it could be something very valuable to someone like, for example, the patients my wife works with who you know, typically are on you know, other opioids to get off of heroin or, or things like that. Right. So, um, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm allowed to, to say this, but I don't know if you've seen the, the documentary prescription thugs. Uh, that was also Chris Bell and, um, spoiler alert halfway through, he reveals that for the first half of the movie, he was, uh, abusing various chemicals. Uh, and you know, he uses Kratom and he, you know, he said it helps and, you know, uh, he's, he's in recovery, you know, so it, this isn't like an abstract concept, you know, where I've read some studies and, and said, yeah, this could really work. Like this is, this is a real world thing. I mean, mm-hmm. last week, last week I, you know, hurt myself training. I couldn't get my, my arm to 90 degrees out to the side. And, you know, after a dose of Kratom, I was fine. I, you know, I could lift it. Interesting. So, this isn't, you know, an abstract thing. And when you look at, you know, someone already did a petition to the White House on, like, whatever, whitehouse.gov, and, and they got 100,000 signatures in less than a week. I mean, the gov- now the White House has to address this. Okay, yeah. In that way, and again, uh, I know you said what happened with ephedrine went through uh, proper channels and they weren't trying to stop its import. And Now, Kratom's coming from, what, Southeast Asia? Is that what I understand, this herb? Yeah, yeah, that's where. It's- is that how? Is that why they, they're able to do that as readily as they are, like to loophole the system and just block its import? Yeah, because it's not synthetic, so you know it has to be grown. Uh, and no, and see, that's one of the things. That's one of the things that really makes it. They're saying, well, this isn't a legitimate dietary supplement. It fits the definition of a dietary supplement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a botanical, you know. Um, you know, and it's it's kind of disheartening again to bring up big pharma and special interest groups. Um, I don't know if you saw, but Dan Fabricant over at whatever organization he's with, Natural Product Health Alliance, he uh, he did a press release that was like, "Yeah, this is great. We're glad you know it's banned." Like, dude, that's not your job. Your job isn't to to get natural products off the market, um, but. I pulled some of their tax returns, and uh, I'm looking into whether their any of the donations to them are coming from from Big Pharma. Because, oh. hmm. yeah, I mean, I've I've heard that they do. I've heard that you know CRN and all those organizations. I've heard that they do get donations from Big Pharma, but they're all tax exempt. So if they do, 
you know, it's going to be public record as soon as I get my, my hands on it. Uh, the one that they have posted on their website, their one tax return, uh, I think that's the AHPA or natural product health, whichever, whatever they are now, um, lists like eight officers, seven of which make $0 a year. Uh, they list really the bare minimum that they're allowed to, to disclose. Okay. Which is suspicious. It's highly suspicious when you fill out a tax return where eight or, you know, seven out of your eight officers make $0 a year. Um, and as little as filled out as possible. So, you know, I've filed to get all of their tax returns in full, not just the 990. Um, but, well, you know, right now that, that takes as long as it takes. You know, it's, the IRS has to get back to me. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that there's, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I've been critical of journalists on this podcast in the past because I've, I've seen science journalists sometimes really drop the ball on certain things. Uh, but the investigative types of things that you're doing right now, I think that's one of the best things that journalists can do probably, right, is just let's just uncover a few things here. And, uh, you know, because like yeah, you said, there are things that aren't disclosed. You know, big pharma shills or whatever, but I, I am saying that it's something I suspect and it's something that I'm going to, you know, to, to be able to put into the, the public sphere. And, you know, in terms of sort of fitness – I don't know, fitness industry journalism, like, I mean, there's some, there's some people that are good, but it's mostly, you know, advertorials. It's mostly nonsense. And I, so I would agree with you. I would say, I would say the journalists that purport to be journalists in this industry are 90% terrible. Yeah. I've actually made the crack before. Yeah, the fitness industry is really interesting to me because the scientists often aren't real scientists. The journalists aren't real journalists, you know, and it, the businessmen aren't real businessmen. It's just it's kind of it's almost comical in some ways, you know. But no, and I think I think what sort of you know I was talking about my background. Like I've worked as a coach, I've worked as a trainer, I've worked at a bunch of gyms, I've worked for supplement companies doing every job from you know driving a truck to formulating, um, you know, and now I'm you know, sort of putting that out there and, and using my skill as a journalist to to bring people into that world. And I, I think no one really does that. Like, no one who works for a company is really going to, or who, who has worked in the industry really says, well, let me tell you about sourcing. This is how it really works. You know, this company says they came up with a great idea, but really, that's not what happened. Someone in China sent them an email with a great idea and, you know, trying to, sh to sell raws. That's yeah. how it happened, yeah. you know? Yeah. Okay, well, let me ask this. John, let me pull you into this here, brother. Mm -hmm. uh, if you had chronic back pain or you were working with someone that you know had uh, some kind of chronic joint pain, uh, if you were convinced that Kratom you, you know, wasn't, wasn't toxic in some way, would you have a discussion about that or would you start looking into Kratom yourself or for a client? Uh both, um, but probably the thing that I would do, I mean, just based on my knowledge of, you know, functional movement and then now since I recently um, got um, did my NKT seminar, like neurokinetic therapy, which actually looks at um, relationships between um, muscles, if the things are like facilitated or um, overactive or inhibited, underactive. Um, yep, yep. And, you know, given that stuff that that I know and then I've actually helped a few people here recently 
um, that had some issues and we did some different muscle testing and, and now they, and now they're good. Um, so I would probably start with, um, like, you know, what's their, what's their training history, kind of do an assessment on them. Um, because most, um, you know, and I'm not a, I'm not a pain specialist. Um, I'm just speaking from more of a, a movement perspective. Um, and even my own experience, some of the pain that I've had, um, just from lifting or low back issues or whatever have actually not been because of, um, the, the back. It's actually been because, um, either like weakness in that area and just overall body compensations that actually led to pain because, um, what you have to keep in mind and understand is that like your body wants to feel safe. Your body wants to feel stable. So like when you have like these knots or these, you know, these trigger points, um, it's your body's way of trying to create stability. Um, and then when, when you have stability, it can, your body is more efficient. Um, and so it can kind of, you know, what I've deemed to call just kind of unleash, you know, hellacious strength, um, you know, and, and power. And so one of the things that I've come to realize is, you know, we all build strength, which is true. Um, but in a said another way, strength isn't built. It's actually granted by your nervous system. So it's only going to be allowed to do so much of what your nervous system is, is allowed to do. So I, I would actually do some assessments on them, you know, first um, and go through those trials and tribulations. And, you know, if it's something that they felt, um, you know, help, then we could continue that. Um, if, if I, you know, knew more about, um, Kratom and, you know, its effects, um, and, and saw some of the studies and that's also something that I could, you know, potentially, um, you know, um, it's a good point though, or right. su- suggest there's the uh, age old argument. I think that you don't want to mask a pain that you could correct, you know, or mask something and train through it and become more damaged. Um, uh, uh, I remember God back in the day there was uh, there was some uh, bodybuilders in the Cleveland area uh, talking about Nubane, you know, and yeah. uh, oh, you can squat forever and it doesn't even hurt. And I thought, where's the fun in that? You know, now that's different though from a guy who's got herniated discs up and down his back and he's popping Vicodin all day just so he can exercise, you know, or even walk. So. Anthony, maybe yeah, I mean, can you share some thoughts on that benefits and risks to lifters that, that you would be aware of? I don't want to say I'm your patient. I'm your athlete. I've had both hips replaced, two herniated discs, surgery on both shoulders. I say, I'm thinking about trying Kratom. What, you know, you put me through a FMS, I get a 15, whatever. I tell you, I think, I'm thinking about trying Kratom. What do you say? What's your next move, I guess, to make this a a more you know, real situation. Well, I suppose it might be something along the lines of, you know, like I was saying, herniated discs. Uh, well, I, mean, I don't a lot want to know like, why you think that you would need it. Oh, oh why would you need it? Uh, the, the pathology would be chronic pain. Whatever, I wake up, I can't move, and, you know, I'm stiff, you know. Yeah, but I mean, you could certainly do others. I mean, you could do like a, um, I mean, SFMA, you know, assessment. You could do some NKT protocol. I mean, I, I think, and, and I'm not, I'm just kind of thinking outside the box here. I think a, a lot of people just kind of, for some reason, they just kind of go more toward the medication side as opposed to more of like the actual movement side. Because, I mean, if you're either in pain because you're moving poorly or you're moving poorly because you're in pain. Um, so, so that would be, it would be like a last resort kind of thing for you. You'd be like, no, let's go through these other things. Right. Okay. 
But would it be a last resort? Would it be something where at the end you say, you know what, man, do your research and do what you're going to do? Like, I mean, would you be opposed to it, I guess, from a, you know. No, I, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be opposed to it, but I mean, I would. I would want to go like the movement route first to see if if he's if he or she has actually, um, you know, gotten better re- results or increased quality of life or movement or just feeling better before you know. So, like just like you said, I mean, I would use that as a as a pretty last resort if all the other stuff had failed. Would it be prior to pharmaceutical intervention? So, would you? If I said, look, I'm either gonna, I'm either gonna start, you know taking Vicodins like Dr. House or I'm going to give Kratom a, a whirl? Um, so would you be more inclined to go with Kratom in that situation? If I'm just comparing that versus Vicodin, then I would probably go with the Kratom, yeah. Okay. No, I'm just curious as to where a professional kind of would stand, you know. Because you have to, because you have to keep in mind, I mean – you know, for like pain medications, and I mean, most of the time, you're you're just reducing the nociception. You know, right? You're not you're not necessarily or even always changing the motor control pattern. You know, within the cerebellum, um, which is you know where pain center you know usually comes from. Um, so it's just kind of like when people have injuries and they just put like ice on it. Yeah, you're just kind of you're reducing the nociception, but you're not really changing, um, you know, what's the, like firing, um, you know, rates of a muscle, you know, and changing the motor control um, of that movement. So, huh. Yeah. yeah. Well, OK, so we're just about out of time. And I, I appreciate the. The commentary, because uh, again, uh, the the listener, and I should be fair to him too by saying that he's in a later email. He said, "Listen, I'm not a scientist, you know, but he sent a link about how uh, kratom can help with weightlifting and that sort of thing." Um, and I haven't looked at the literature, so it's really hard, I think, for John and I to make any kinds of conclusions based on evidence when we haven't really looked at the, you know, the evidence as far as risks and benefits and. Uh, sure. I, I can see anything from reduced cortisol secretion to, you know, enhanced recovery. Or a lot of people have a hard time sleeping at night, especially if they use pre-workouts uh, supplements. Uh, but then, how would it interact with those or other meds and supplements? You know, uh, there, I th- there's a lot of issues there. Yeah. yeah, of course. No, no, it's um, it's a it's a complex issue, and and that's why it's so unfortunate that the DEA, like a little kid, you know, like saying I'm not going to listen to you and covering their ears, you know. Right. Yeah. It's it's uh yeah you know and I think to a lot of people who've been around weightlifting for a long enough time, from the anabolic steroids control act to the things with ephedrine to the you know th- there's always that fine line between regulation and you know we've had guests on the show before who said how how bizarre is it for example with androgens. You know, that it's a federal crime in the U.S. to be excess male, you know, and these are interesting points. You know, it's interesting points. Or or what is the role of big pharma in a lot of this stuff, whether it's fish oils or, you know, painkillers or or whatever. So, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for being on the show, Anthony. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot for coming on. Okay, everybody, that'll be about it. Uh, Look for the fall funds drive coming up. It's time for us to start you know, addressing that. And then uh, we'll see you next week. Hey, listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls 
in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, in their thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, Please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.